Before we begin this week's episode, I would like to invite you to become a Patreon member. You can do this by heading over to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Violin Chronicles and signing up. Here you'll be able to access all the episodes plus bonus episodes for Patreon members only. The first one I am publishing is about the incredible Queen's Ballet held at the French court in which Amati's violins played and the amazing story surrounding it. And it's important because it was the first occasion where written music specifically for violin was made. For Patreon members, I will also be publishing short episodes, piccolo episodes on each maker that will only go for half an hour. The first one is on Gasparo de Salo, where we'll be talking briefly about the Brescian makers that came even before him, then briefly about his life, and then the characteristics of a Gasparo or Brescian instrument, if you'd like to be able to identify different aspects or be reminded of characteristic points. Head on over to Patreon for that. Now back to the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I, Linda Lesbe, will attempt to bring to life the story surrounding famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting violin makers of history. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband, Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French school, l'École Nationale de Lutry, Mirco. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often, when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the history of the violin. Welcome back to Cremona, a city where you can find almost anything your everyday Renaissance citizen could desire. Located on a bend of the impressively long Po River, bursting with artisans and commerce, we find ourselves in the mid-1500s, and more precisely in the home of Girolamo and Antonio Amati, otherwise known as the Amati Brothers. In these episodes, I'll be talking about Andrea Amati's two sons, Antonio and Girolamo. Sometimes Girolamo is also referred to as Hieronymus, the Latin version of his name. Because I'm doing these podcasts chronologically, we heard about the early childhood of the brothers in their in the Andrea Amati episodes. As we heard in the previous episode, Antonio, the elder brother, by quite some years, perhaps even 14 years older than Girolamo, inherited his father's workshop with his little bro when their father died. They grew up in Cremona during the mid-1500s in a time that was relatively more peaceful than their father's childhood and would have attended the local school 
The local school was attended mainly by children of merchants and nobles. They would learn, in addition to the traditional subjects of geometry, arithmetic, and even astrology, subjects such as geography, architecture, algebra, and mechanics, both theoretical and applied. This created quite a well-educated middle class that the brothers would have been part of. Like their father, they would go on to be quite successful in their business, adapting their products to the demands of the time. The brothers were growing up in post-Reformation Cremona, and the instrumental music was bounding forward. Renaissance composers were fitting words and music together in an increasingly dramatic fashion. Humanists were studying the ancient Greek treaties on music and the relationships between music and poetry and how it could stir the listener's emotions. This was displayed in madrigals and later in opera, and all the while the Amati workshop, along with other instrument makers of course, were toiling away making instruments so that all this could happen. Now the eldest brother, Antonio, never appears to marry or have a family, but the younger brother, Girolamo, apparently a ladies' man, does, and as you would have heard in the previous episodes, when he was 23, he married Lucrezia Cronetti, a local girl, and she comes to live in the Amati house, handing over her dowry to her new husband and father-in-law. A few years later, Girolamo's father saved up enough money to buy the family home so that when he passes away in 1577, Girolamo is in his mid-20s and his older brother in probably around his late 30s. They inherited a wealthy business, a house and a workshop. So here we find the Amati brothers living and working together in the house and workshop in San Fustino. Antonio, the head of the household, and Girolamo with his young bride. Business is looking good and life looks promising. Antonio and Girolamo may have been one of the only violin makers in Cremona, but they were by far not lone artisans in the city. They were surrounded by merchants and tradespeople busy in industry. There were belt makers, embroiderers, blacksmiths, carpenters, boat builders, masons, terracotta artisans, weavers, textile merchants and printers, just to name a few of the 400 trades listed in the city at this period. Business was going well for our violin makers. There was a boom in the city, many noble houses were being built, amongst which the grand residences of merchants stood out sanctioning their social ascent. Charitable houses, monasteries and convents were popping up like mushrooms around town. Ever since the Counter-Reformation, the local impetus to help the poor and unfortunate had flourished. Wondering what the Counter-Reformation is? Then go back and listen to episode 2 of the Andrea Amati series, where we talk about what the Reformation was, what the Counter-Reformation was, and what its effects were on artisans in Cremona. But nowhere said organised religion like the cathedral. And entering the vast, echoey structure was something to behold, with its mysterious, awe-inspiring grandeur, the towering heights of the ceilings inspiring a sense of reverence and humility. The vaulted arches and frescoed domes drawing the eye upwards, the kaleidoscope of colours entering the windows, and the glittering of precious metals illuminated by flickering candles. Ornate furnishings, intricate artworks, sculptures, and base reliefs with depictions of saints, biblical stories, and the scenes from the life of Christ covering the walls all created an otherworldly feeling and a sense of the divine. 
And what would the cathedral be without music? The glittering of gold, the fragrant smell of incense, and the heavenly sounds of music were an all-in-one package for the regular church attender in the Amati Brothers' day. The Chapel House School of the Cathedral produced many talented composers, yet the church would only sponsor and permit sacred music, and even then, this music had to be in full compliance with the Council of Trent. This meant following a whole bunch of rules in composition. Wing clipping of aspiring young composers led to many of them moving away to other courts and cities who were looking for fresh raw talent. This may or may not have been the case for a musician and composer called Claudio Monteverdi. But what we do know is that he left Cremona to join the employ of the Mantuan court at the age of 23. I spoke to cellist James Beck about Monteverdi, who was a Cremonese composer who left the city to work at the Gonzaga court during the Amati brothers' lifetime. And so Monteverdi, for example, Mm. I have to take him as an example, he was employed in the court, in the Mantuan court, and he was Mm. just one of many musicians uh, and composers Mm. and also I'm wondering about just um, the everyday life would they also uh, were musicians expected to to wear certain clothes like they were just told look this is what you're wearing yeah livery is the um the um the term for the the uniform of the house and we know about that kind of stuff from you know Downton Abbey and all that kind of stuff um, so, yeah, musicians were very much part of the servant class, a very intellectual servant class and a very trusted servant class. And, yeah, but um, Monteverdi arrived at that Gonzaga court in Mantua as a string instrument player of some kind. We don't really know if it was a gamba, you know, between the legs or braccio held like a violin. He was in, at the court for about, I think, 10 or 15 years as a string player before he became the the maestro de capelle and uh and over the course of that was a very trusted employee because he accompanied his employer the duke on various war campaigns or social outings to different uh, to other countries as a musician as a musician and 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 maybe as some kind of trusted part of his entourage yeah part of the entourage so he um monteverdi was picking up lots of ideas about things that could go on in music, so because he was witnessing different practices, so he was he was in Flanders, he was in Hungary, he was in other parts of Italy, seeing how they did music over in you know, over there on the other side of the fence. And I think what is um, what can never be underestimated is that communication was haphazard and accidental in previous times, and there was no such thing as uniformity. So to go to another country and to to go to another court and to see musicians who had different training or had come into different spheres of influence to yourself would have been hugely, hugely exciting and influential. And we think that Monteverdi picked up some of the ideas of what might be opera from these kind of trips. Yeah, yeah. As It makes me think of when I was a student and I would do work experience in different workshops and they would. I had been taught in the French school, like it was a very mm. specific way of doing things, and I'd mm. go to another workshop and I'd just be like, wow, like what are you what are you doing <laughs> how, how could this possibly work and it does and you're like oh and now I feel like I the way I work it's a mixture of all these different techniques what works yes best for me and it must have been magnified so much to such a greater level oh. for in that period for music and competition because of this yeah because of the social isolation and the geographic isolation yeah. of previous times and I mean just if we just talk about pitch 
whole idea of what is an A was different in each town. Yeah. And it might have sounded better on some instruments than not so good yeah, on others. Yeah. And those instruments would have been, you know, crafted to sound good at those different pitches. And now we, we all play the same pitch and we want mm. every instrument to be the same. Yeah. Um, what were some of the, if you could generalise, what were some of the differences for you in the different uh, Lucia schools? So in the French method, you basically hold everything in your hands or it's like wedged between you and the, the workbench and you don't use really uh, vices. Uh, and I have quite small hands and <laughs> I did one work experience and the guy was like, just put it in a vice. Like, why are you trying to hold this? It's too big for you. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. And I was getting a lot of um, uh, RSI in right. in and like sore wrists and it kind of just, it was sort of practical as well. It was pretty. Wow. And is that for, for crafting individual elements or is that for working on, on complete instruments? Uh, yeah, like in general, like you just, um, you can not make a violin, you can make a violin without using a vice and they, um, they won't use sandpaper or it's all done with um, scrapers and uh, yeah, so just. Wow. <laughs> So I so it's good. I know all the different techniques. Yeah. And I, and I can when there is a blackout or an electricity failure, we can just keep on going. Like we can keep rolling. Uh it doesn't stop us. <laughs> there, there was a thing at Montevaldi that you that you seem to know about how madricals with the <laughs> just when I said madrigal. <laughs> I know about madrigals. madrigals. I, hope I, I hope I do. In Mantra and the this kind of trapezoidal room. Oh well, they did have it. There's a very special room in the in the ducal court, uh, ducal castle or ducal um, palace in Mantua, and it's, they call it the the, the wedding room. And um, it's a a room that was had existed for some time. I mean, it's a huge, huge palace. I think it's the sixth largest palace in Europe. So it's 34,000 square metres, 500 rooms. And this is not, I mean, Mantua was not a big state. Um, but You never know when you need 500 rooms. <laughs> it wasn't a big state, but it was a very aspirational state and they really wanted to, to kind of prove themselves amongst these, the cultural elite of, of northern Italy because there were extraordinary things going on in Florence and Venice. So, you know, they were really, the Gonzagas were really trying to hold their own. So they had one of these 500 rooms slightly remodeled, so it was of cube proportions. Right, so you walk into a cube. You walk into a cube, and then um, they commissioned um, a very uh, distinguished painter to cover everything within that room in um, very realistic, uh, lifelike portraits of of the Gonzagas going about their life. And this was the highest status room in the palace and it was used for various purposes to impress. So it could be used for ceremonies or it could be used for as a bedchamber for the Duke to, um, if he wanted to receive a guest of high status and, and show that guest that he slept in this incredible room. Slightly creepy. <laughs> All these people looking at you. I know, and they're really, they're really, there's a lot of eyeballing in those portraits. <laughs> so it's like um, you're outnumbered. Yeah. Like when you yeah. go in there, like yeah. you're surrounded by you're surrounded by the Gonzagas. Yeah. Like, uh, we're here. Yeah, yeah. That was not a very uh, fertile or uh, 
healthy line. So they, they were dying out fast, but there were lots of them painted on the walls. Wasn't there one with mirrors? Oh, there was, there is a, there was a hidden room um, that they discovered in, I think, 1998. Yeah, um, which had mirrors. And I was wondering what the, maybe it was polished metal, the mirrors? I'm not sure. Where they would, where they would sing magical. Well, they think it was specifically for, for performances of Monteverdi, but I don't know. Yeah. Why a hidden room if needed? Yes, and how how do you hide a room for five hundred? Oh, sorry, for two hundred years. Maybe it was walled up. Or, no, they said it was yeah. above his bedchamber, so a level up. Well, I mean, if you're in a palace with five hundred rooms, you might miss one. You know, if it's walled up. <laughs> and also, there was a, a big. There were quite a lot of um, traumatic experiences in the um, Mantuan court. Not long after Monteverdi left there, there was a a, a siege and a war. And then and a lot of plague. So you can see how knowledge could mm. could dissipate and yeah. and everyone could die that knew about it. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. The, when the Gonzagas were running out of heirs, their neighbours and particularly the Habsburgs were like, "Hmm, we might take that little gem of a duchy." So they, yeah, they laid siege to it for two summers. War was a summer sport at those days because you know no one wanted to do it in winter because it was just too much. And Mantua is, at that stage, um, completely surrounded by water. It was very cleverly uh, conceived and beautifully conceived too because the water reflects the, the beautiful um, buildings. And so they, the Mantuans stockpiled food and drew up the bridges. And yeah, and for two years, they were no one came in or out of the city whilst the Habsburgs laid siege. And actually, the Habsburgs didn't really get through um, that those defences, but at the in the second summer, in the second siege, a cannonball did get through, and then the hole that the cannonball made, some rats got through, and those dirty soldiers who'd been on campaign for two summers were riddled with plague, and the plague got into the town, and that was actually the undoing of the um, of the Gonzaga dynasty. Wow. Mm. A rat brought them down. A rat brought them down, yeah. And so the plague weakened the city. The city fell, and then that plague was taken by those um, refugees from Mantua down into Venice, and Venice was absolutely devastated by plague for uh, something like 10 years. Oh, yeah. And the, and the city's population plummeted to its lowest in 150 years. Wow. Yeah, and it's true that war was the, like a summer sport, and I'm, I'm wondering if nowadays we, you know, that's... We play sport instead. <laughs> well, I hope. I think that's why we do play organised sport. I think that's yeah. It's in the World to, Cup. Yeah. The world. <laughs> well, yeah. Although that's that's not to so get much. that aggression, to get all that aggression out of our system <laughs> in a nicely controlled manner. It is like countries like against each other. <laughs> totally is. The Cremona City Municipality had at its disposal a group of wind players mostly made up of brass instruments, trombones, bombards, bagpipes, and sometimes a cornet. This ensemble was particularly suited for outdoor performances. Or at least I hope it was. I don't know if you've ever heard a bombard being played inside. I have. Anyway, the viola da braccia players and viola or violin players were also employed by the town hall and given a uniform made of red and white cloth. This was the instrumental group in the church, and it doubled up for civic occasions as well. I speak to Carlo Chiesa, violin maker and expert in Milan. The other way by which 
Cremonese makers got their success is musicians. Because uh, in the 16th century, there are a few important Cremonese musicians moving from Cremona and going to northern cities to play for the emperor, for the king, or to Venice. I think the most important uh, supplier of instruments uh, at some point uh, out of Cremona was the Monteverdi Circle. This orchestra employed by the city of Cremona played both for the council and in the church on all public holidays and in processions. One of their members, a cornet player called Ariodante Reggiani, who was paid the considerable sum of 100 lira when the maestro di cappella was paid 124 lira, ended up having to be let go. It turned out he was a little bit laissez-faire with his responsibilities as a musician and a lawsuit was brought against him for neglecting his duties as a musician. To add to this, he was also found guilty of murder. So, in the end, their homicidal cornet player was replaced. James Beck. You know, you've got the scientists and human thought and philosophy and looking back to Greek and Roman antiquity. So, I feel like that's, that's like the idea in art and literature. And what do you, how do you see that happening in music? We as musicians had really practical roles to fulfil as well, and sometimes that was ex- expressing the will of the church through music. Mm. And of course, you know, that's kind of self-explanatory. And then we've got this really practical role to entertain, and and how we go about doing that with the with the materials we have. So, the Renaissance as an idealistic expression, um, I think, um, you know, as a as a practical musician, we we were always doing others bidding out unless we were a church musician right. we were there to entertain and to to excite and to distract and to um, um and to as an instrument of sometimes of state policy or or of you know kind of sh- showing off the power or mm-hmm. opulence of a, of a of a state maybe it was through like opera where you're you're getting like human emotion yes absolutely absolutely but also those um the the subject of all those early operas uh, is usually um, ancient material from ancient Greece or Rome. So you know clearly, Renaissance in its in its ideals of yeah. looking back. Um, yeah, Orfeo. Of course, um, Poppea, um, Ulysses. I mean that the operas were de- were definitely um, drawing into ancient literature and myth, which was bypassing Christianity in many ways. Yeah, it's strange because it sort of uh, it didn't. It was an era where it didn't really contradict the that people were cool with it. Like they, yeah, were, both. they were very devoted churchgoers, and yeah. at the same time, they were very into all this Greek Absolutely. and Roman mythology. It was yeah. it's interesting, yeah. and then all this human thinking and yeah. invention. Yeah. I mean, Monteverdi was a priest as well, right? Towards the end of his life, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Did a did a Johnny Cash. <laughs> instruments are starting to play a bigger role in the music in the church in Cremona. In 1573, the maestro di cappella, the chapel master, at the cathedral wrote a piece of music for five voices consorted with all sorts of musical instruments. The words and text are completely clear in accordance with the Council of Trent, he points out. 
The Amati brothers' father, Andrea Amati, would have witnessed this musical tradition in his lifetime, as he attended church, where the music sung would have gone from something that had been unrecognisable in, or in any case very difficult to understand, to music that had identifiable text that could possibly be understood and sung with. They were not hymns like the Lutherans were singing in a congregational style, but there was a marked change in the music being played in the churches, and these were the effects of the Counter-Reformation trickling into everyday life of the people. The workshop continued to be a success. Both the brothers were able to earn a living and to provide a generous dowry for their sister, who had just recently married a man from Casal Maggiore. In town, the cathedral looked like it was finally going to have the interior finished. This had been going on ever since their father was a little boy, and now it looked like all the frescoes and paintings were to be completed, and most amazing of all was an enormous astronomical clock that was being mounted on the terrazzo, the giant bell tower next to the cathedral. Sadly, Girolamo's pregnant wife would never see the clock that would amaze the citizens of Cremona, as shortly after giving birth to their daughter, Elizabeth, Lucrezia died. The fragility of life and uncertainty that Girolamo had to deal with is quite removed from our lives today, and a man in his situation would certainly be looking to marry again, if for nothing else than to have a mother for his young daughter. And as he was contemplating remarrying, finding a new wife and mother for his child, over in Paris one of the biggest celebrity weddings of the decade was taking place and the music for the closing spectacle was being played in part on the instruments his father and brother had made for the Valois royal family all those years ago. And if you think Catherine de Medici's magnificences up to now were impressive, just wait until you hear about what was probably the most expensive ballet ever performed. For that episode, I invite you to sign up to Patreon. This is the end of the first episode on the Amati brothers, and we can see that they're starting to make their way in their careers and their lives in Cremona without their father. So join me next week as we see the drama unfold between the two brothers and the famous fight. A big thank you to James Beck for speaking to me this week. Be sure to subscribe to The Violin Chronicles so you know when new episodes are coming out. And you can leave a comment. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram with the tag at The Violin Chronicles. This is where I put a lot of images relating to the podcast. You can also email at theviolinchronicles at gmail.com. And for extra content, including the Queen's Ballet episode and the mini episodes where I sum up each maker and their life, work and characteristics so you can work on your expertise skills, sign up to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Violin Chronicles. These shorter episodes are a little bit different to what you have heard on the Violin Chronicles and they only go for half an hour, keeping it short and sweet. And I'll catch you next time on The Violin Chronicles.